1 Corinthians 7, verse 25, Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference or a distinction, the idea is, between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And Father, we just ask as we continue in our journey through the book of First Corinthians that every intent and purpose behind why your spirit gave us this book in the scripture, as well as even this very chapter and portion that we're studying right now this morning, that it would find its proper place to speak to us today in a real and a living way. So we ask, prepare us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we continue now in our worship, and we pray that you would speak through the power and the ministry of your Spirit to each and every one of our hearts. And we ask this expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, staying focused refers to continuing to pay attention to something, typically in light of its importance. And because certain things are important, sometimes we need to work on staying focused without becoming distracted by purposely concentrating on remaining on a particular task or a particular thing. And that's really, it seems, spiritually what this passage is dealing with, the subject of remaining spiritually focused. In fact, the very language that we just read together almost clearly indicates that is what the Spirit of God is predominantly trying to convey. We read things like statements in this passage of Scripture, like the time is short into our Lord's return. Paul says here in these verses that circumstances of this world are getting harder and harder to deal with. He addresses how things that are part of this present world, he says, are passing away the idea is they're coming to a close and that cares and responsibilities even of general life or marriage or family can begin to divide our attention and make it difficult for us to really focus on mainly pleasing the lord in our lives and how it's a blessing if you can live in a way where you can serve the lord without distraction so for all of us whether we are currently married whether we are still in a single status, whether we are young or old or whatever our life state may be, staying spiritually focused is crucial for all of us. 
So I think if there's ever a passage in the Bible, today may be a great way to realize the lessons here are valuable for all of us to take heed to. So if there's ever a day not to get distracted during the Bible study, today might be the day. Today might be the day to actually pay attention and try and stay focused to what the Lord is trying to say. Paul is speaking these things. He brings this chapter now to a close of maintaining spiritual focus to be able to serve the Lord in a focused way without distraction. In light of this chapter we've been looking at where he tells us he's directly answering specific questions that the Corinthian believers had written to him and asked him about. Questions, as we've seen, about singleness and maintaining their sexual desires and how to manage those things and marriage and those type of subjects. And he's already upheld, as we've seen, the importance of the marriage relationship. That's been very evident as Paul's been writing in this chapter that marriage is a blessing and valuable and that marriage is a God-given thing that should be seen as an honorable thing and that it is typically for most God's ideal and design because of God creating it and it helping us in so many ways. Now, as Paul continues to work his way through the remaining verses here, he's also now going to uphold the value here of living in a single status, whether that be just for a season of time or whether it be long-term, where someone would perhaps go their whole life, or maybe the remainder of their life, if they're no longer married because of widowhood or divorce, remaining in that single status. The idea is for the single person to understand, never thinking singleness is a punishment. I'm sure no single person's ever thought that. Or that God's lost your file. I'm sure you've never thought that. Or that singleness is a hindrance somehow to your spiritual life or something to hold you back from really enjoying life. Or, or even that being a single Christian is kind of like a second class spiritual life. God wants us to know that that's not the case. That singleness actually affords some unique advantages to the Christian to actually really thrive spiritually whether it's for a season or whether it's long term. And Paul will address some of that in the midst of of these things. Look back with me in verse 25, if you would, as Paul begins this section. He says, Now concerning virgins, he says here, I have no commandment from the Lord. Notice the term used there, virgins. It's actually a term that's just used to simply describe the unmarried man or the unmarried woman. We see it used uh, in the New Testament to refer to men and to women. But it's a term really just used to describe someone who's never yet been married. Now, let me tie two things together. It's a term used in the New Testament to describe those who've never yet been married. And the Spirit of God translates it for us, virgin. Please take notice of that. That God himself assumes, takes it for granted, because that's his way, that someone who's unmarried is still a virgin. In other words, in God's mindset, that is the ideal and the way of God. So if someone has never been married, God assumes they've retained their sexual purity because that's God's ideal. That's God's will and God's design. And your status of being a virgin and morally pure should only change when your status has changed from going single to being married. So from God's perspective, it's interesting. He refers to the unmarried as a virgin. He says to those single, to those concerning the unmarried state, he says, notice verse 25, I have no commandment from the Lord. In other words, he's gonna say, I'm not giving a command from the Lord here. I'm not sharing something that Jesus commanded because the Lord does not say that you have to remain single, nor does the Lord ever say that you have to get married. 
God gives us that freedom. God's word doesn't command either because we can faithfully serve the Lord Jesus as a married person and you can faithfully serve the Lord Jesus as a single person. So the Bible never commands doing one or the other. And Paul says, look, all I'm trying to do here, he says, is not give a command from the Lord. You've got to be single. God commands it. Or you've got to be married. God commands it. He says, I'm just trying to give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. And keep in mind, Paul had lived in both statuses. At one point, Paul was married. And now at this point and stage of his life, Paul finds himself as an unmarried man serving the Lord. So he's experienced both. And he says, look, I'm just trying to share my judgment on the leading of the Holy Spirit directing me regarding these matters to help and give guidance. He says, verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, he says, that it's good for a man to remain as he is. So he begins by indicating that due to the difficult days of the current generation that he was writing in, that it was likely best not to make major changes to their marital status unnecessarily. You see what he says in verse 26 there? He says, I suppose in light of the present distress, some translation render that the present crisis. The idea is there were current pressures that was making it a very difficult time to live in the days that Paul was writing that. Apparently, they were enduring very difficult days and hard times and stressful situations in the midst of that current generation. Sound familiar? Present distress, present crisis. Boy, couldn't be maybe more applicable. Circumstances in that time period were very challenging to navigate. They were days of crisis. And because of the present distress in the days of crisis, people were enduring additional anxiety and stress and complications. Some believe Paul's referring here to the severe persecutions that came under the emperor Nero in the time of the Roman Empire, making it incredibly hard to be a Christian because there was a lot of additional suffering and hardship that went on in your life beyond the present times, there was additional hardship because of the severe persecution and resistance to those who were Christ followers. So bearing up under such difficult things in society was really hard. And so Paul is saying, look, therefore, it would probably then be best in light of all the pressure and the crisis and the distress we're already living through to not unnecessarily be trying to change your current status in life. So in other words, married couples and existing families, they needed to stick together and support one another in the midst of the present distress. So Paul would be saying to the married couples, look, since things are already hard, now is not the time to be turning away from one another and putting an end to your marriages on top of all the other problems and difficulties. Now's the time you should be really sticking together because families need each other. And that when times are hard and distressing, those are the times we should rally together and really work on supporting one another. And for those who are single on the other side of it, he says it would also be good for them just to remain as they are in the time of present distress. Because for those single entering into a marriage would just make things way more challenging in a time when it was already distressing and difficult to live in. For example, if you use the analogy of the potential persecution, it is one thing to try and be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ as a single person at the threat of somebody putting the sword to your own throat or making you miserable and punishing you. It's a whole nother thing. He's trying to say to the singles, look, the last thing you want to do is find yourself on top of it, watching somebody putting a sword to your wife's throat and have to decide if you're going to follow Christ. 
or to your children's throat. And he's saying, look, you would be better to just remain single and not have to deal with the additional stress and the extra complication because times are already hard. Because again, marriage brings extra responsibility and it adds additional burden. So because times are hard, sometimes it's best, Paul says here, just to keep things as they are and not to unnecessarily make changes, particularly in hard seasons. Because any change does what? Any change brings challenges, right? Is that not true? Any change brings challenges. So in light of that, in challenging times, change may not be good. Any change brings challenges. So Paul's saying in light of that, in challenging times, making changes may not be good. It might be better just to remain and stay the course, especially in difficult and hard seasons. Paul then to illustrate this goes on to say, verse 27, are you bound to a wife in marriage? Do not seek to be loose. So he says, if you're married, continue to remain faithful to your spouse because you need each other especially in the midst of the present distress and the hard times. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves and a threefold cord is not quickly broken so paul says here look once you're married he uses the term pretty strong you are bound i like that term in the bible you are bound to that marriage partner that is you are bound to them paul's going to say until death brings an end to it so you shouldn't become distracted trying to find a way to get loosed or freed from that marriage relationship times are hard enough a marital breakup would just make things all the more harder the bible's trying to say When life's already hard, why would you want to add more difficulty to it by entering into a marital breakup? One man said, who actually was an attorney, I find it quite interesting. One attorney said, the only people who profit from divorces are attorneys. Boy, is that fitting. An attorney. The only people who profit from divorces are us attorneys. So again, if you're married, work on strengthening your marriage in difficult times, not thinking that somehow the solution is to get out of your marriage because all you're going to do is add more distress to your life and current difficulties. Now, on the other side of that, he addresses the singles. He says, are you currently loosed from a wife? Are you single? You're not obligated to a marriage relationship. Then he says his instruction, do not seek a wife. So what he's instructing there to those single is not to be striving to hurry up and find themselves a spouse to get married to. See, sometimes the struggles of loneliness and discontent and, and, and strong passions and flame passions can tend to drive those who are single in life. And as a result, what begins to happen is the single person ends up becoming overly focused, nothing wrong with being interested, but overly focused on trying to seek a spouse as their top priority. And it becomes kind of the underlying symptom in their life that disrupts the healthiness of their spiritual life because they're always searching after, they're always on the hunt, if you know what I mean, for their spouse. And sometimes that can actually become something that begins to drive them in an unhealthy way where it preoccupies them. Look, let me say this morning, if you're single, there's nothing wrong with being open to what's on the market, okay? You can see what houses are up for sale. 
I did that at one stage in my life. We all do that when you're a single person. It's okay to be open to what's on the market if you're a single person, yet beware of falling prey to your feelings and thoughts about marriage, thinking that that's the answer that will just solve everything because that's not the case. And Paul is going to address that here where you're always seeking after a potential spouse and it actually preoccupies you and you start striving in the flesh to find a marriage partner. If you allow that to begin to happen, it will only lead to you actually stumbling spiritually. It won't help you spiritually. And even more than that, it actually could lead to stifling God's plan for you. Because as you're trying to take this exit ramp and that exit ramp and trying this one and trying that one, God's saying, um, my exit ramp's two more down the highway, but you got to get back on the road with me first. So be very careful of that. You know, read the book of Genesis, God's original institution in the marriage relationship. And I always point this out to couples when I'm doing premarital counseling. It says that God created the woman for the man, right? He created Eve for Adam. So when God has a a heart towards your marriage partner, he is custom creating the exact person for you. And then it says that God brought her to the man. And then they discovered one another as the first two Human beings, the man and woman on earth, and then, of course, God brought them together in marriage. But again, God's involved in the process. God will custom create the exact life partner for you, and God will bring them into your path in the midst of what you're doing. What was Adam doing? He was just working the garden and talking to the animals, and he was walking with God. And then all of a sudden, God brought her, who God planned for him, into his path, and boom. They discovered one another, and God is faithful to do that. He did it originally. He hasn't changed. You know, let me give you a great life verse for the whole concept of marriage and many things. It's Matthew six thirty three. It's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things, even a spouse, will be added to you. You know, when I found my wife, you know how I found my wife? I wasn't looking for her. Wasn't looking for her. I was seeking first the kingdom and serving the Lord. You can ask her. She had to beg me to date her. No, I'm just teasing. She didn't really have to do that. She, 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 she had to get my attention. But I'm dead serious. If you just focus on seeking the Lord, trust the Lord, he will then add into your life the person he's intended for you. And they will be a blessing and not a hindrance and a stumbling block. So Paul then goes on, verse 28, to say, but even if you do marry... You have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, he says, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So though it may be good, if you can be content, Paul says, to exercise self-control and to remain in a single status, he says there's nothing wrong from God's perspective, however, if you decide to get married. In fact, you notice verse 28 there, he even goes so far to assure the single person that if they do marry, he says, Strong language, he says, they have not sinned. Now, to me, that's interesting. It's almost as if he's apparently addressing what maybe was an idea even in that day that existed. Perhaps there was teaching and ideas being conveyed that somehow there was something more spiritual about being single and celibate. And if you really were devoted to God, you didn't have to get married. And almost as it was if you were compromising to get married because you couldn't control your God-given passions and your natural romantic affection and sexual desire. So it was true holiness to be in single celibate living. And, and God says here, look, that, that's not true. From my perspective, you can serve me as a single person. You can serve me as a married person. There's nothing sinful or wrong getting married to someone, and that should never be taught or conveyed to anybody. 
If God calls someone supernaturally to a unique gift of singleness, that's one thing. But to tell people, if you really want to be holy or you want to serve God in a real holy way, you got to live single and celibate. That's not a real healthy thing. Paul says here, people haven't sinned if they've gotten married. Marriage is God's design. God created marriage. There's nothing wrong. You can serve God in either status. However, Paul says, if you're single and you opt to become married, though it's not wrong, look what he says the second half of the verse. He says, but be fully aware it will add new and different struggles in your life that you weren't experiencing when you were single. He says right there in verse 28, nevertheless, if you choose to get married, he says, those who get married, such will have trouble in the flesh. In other words, he's saying, if you've married, you haven't sinned, but he says, I just want you to realize that life will get even more challenging once you get married. He doesn't want anyone who is single to think that if you decide to get married, that you should do it without your eyes wide open, that you're making a major change and transition in your life status, and it will bring its fair degree of challenges as well. Again, as two different people who are unique by design, who've come from different backgrounds, different family upbringings, you had all these different factors. And then on top of that, though they love Jesus, if they do love Jesus, they're still completely imperfect. They're all just a tad bit selfish still, just a tad bit impatient. We tend to be contentious. And, you know, and so he's saying, look, you're taking two different people and you're trying to put them together and make them live a shared existence now. And he's saying, do you think there's not going to be a little bit of sparks once in a while? Do you think there's not going to be some troubles and challenges to adjust to that type of living experience? Paul was trying to spare those single from being misguided to thinking that marriage is just so easy. All those married people, they got it so well. And, And to think it's just the solution to everything. I don't know how many times I've talked to a young person or a single person, not just a young person, and had to say to them, hold on a minute, let's tap the brakes here. Marriage is not a solution. If you're trying to use marriage as a solution, you have the wrong idea for marriage. Marriage is not a solution. It's something that you should never enter into just thinking, oh, well, if I just enter into it, it'll be carefree. Everything will get better if I just get married. And the Bible does not teach that reality. Marriage has its own share of challenges to navigate. It creates new troubles. Is marriage wonderful? Absolutely. Look who I'm married to. I mean, of course it's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's the most blessed experience in the world. 26 years later, I would marry the same person all over again. Absolutely, certainly. However, that being said, it's important to realize there's work to make a marriage work. And the reality is this. When you get married, life becomes much more complicated on many levels. Now, that's not a negative thing. That's just the reality, right? Those who are married understand that. Life gets way more complicated on many levels when you get married because change, as I said earlier, always brings new challenges. And probably one of the greatest changes in life is what? Get married. You want life change? Get married. Your life will change. Your life will absolutely transform. So therefore, it brings a new set of struggles. And God wants us, I believe, simply to have a mature outlook of the marriage relationship. And for those who are still single to realize transitioning from singleness to marriage, yes, it may be wonderful, but it also will require constant work and something that will bring new troubles and new challenges. And those married face their own set of troubles. And Paul says, look, I'm single. I'm just trying to spare you from not having your eyes wide open by entering into a marriage without realizing what that really involves. He says, verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time 
is short, he says. So again, what's Paul sensing there? The time is short. He's sensing the imminency of the return of the Lord. Notice that Paul lived with this sense that there was a short gap of time he believed until the Lord would return. And let me just say, if that was the case when Paul wrote it then, how much more are those few words true now? If Paul sensed then the time is short, how much more should we sense today how short time really must be till Jesus returns? We see so much last day's prophecy having already been fulfilled. We see the signs of our time very evident. Times are getting darker and darker as we live in this current generation. And we look around, what did Jesus say regarding his return? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the son of man. Think about what it was like in the days of Noah. People were barbaric. They were becoming out of control, no restraint anymore. I mean, the, the, you know, sexual perversity was just rampant. People, people just had no sense. It was, again, just this brutish, callous, barbaric behavior of humanity. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, when you see it starting to get like that in the world again, the son of man's coming. You know, as we look at our world, certainly we see so many reflections of those same things. Indeed, we should live with a sense of an awareness that the time is short. May God give us a greater alertness to that reality, that we realize these very things, because that reality gives us an influence, an impetus in our life to want to live a certain way. That's why Paul says, in light of this, he says, look, brethren, the time is short. Look at the next statement. So that from now on, he says... In other words, in light of this from now on, knowing the time is short, therefore, from now on, wow, I forgot that. Time is short. Wake me up, Lord. From now on, therefore, he goes on to say, in light of that, is those who have wives should be as those who had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world is not misusing it for the form of this world currently, he says, is passing away. So Paul gives now some analogies, some examples of trying to press home this idea. Look, time is short. So therefore, from now on, let's be careful not to become preoccupied and distracted in our spiritual lives. He says, verse 29, first of all, that those who have wives should be as those who had none. Now, obviously, he is not saying it's right to neglect your wife because Jesus is coming. So don't think, all right, guys, you found your memory verse there that you got the right to say, look, I'm going hunting, I'm going fishing, I'll be gone for four days because Jesus is coming back. So um, I can act like I don't have a wife anymore. And let me just say, all joking aside, beware of that hyper spirituality that can come into your life sometimes. You know, it can be a temptation really where a person begins to think they don't have to spend time with their wife or take care of their wife and almost selfishly start to neglect their spouse or mistreat their spouse in order to pursue spiritual things, right? I mean, I've sat with couples before. I've sat with couples before where, let's say, for example, I'll give you an analogy on the other side of that, where I've had a, 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 a wife who was a Christian and a husband who was not a Christian, 
and she's excited about the Lord, so she's at church Sunday. She's at church Wednesday. Tuesday, she goes to precept Bible. Friday, she goes to you know women's uh, prayer for your husbands that aren't saved. And, you know, and, and five days out of the week, she's doing some. And, and ultimately, the, the husband says, look, I'm glad you're excited about this Jesus thing, but um, like, it's like I don't even have a wife anymore. It'd be nice if this Jesus thing would make you make dinner for me once in a while. And see, we have to be very careful in the same way. Uh, well, I got to do this. I got to do ministry. I got to serve the Lord. I got to read my Bible. And all of a sudden, you know, the wife starts to realize, well, I mean, goodness gracious, you do this, you do that. You serve the neighbors, you feed the poor, you take care of the homeless, you do all these things. You don't even spend any time with me anymore. And it's done in this hyper spirituality. So again, Paul here says, look, really what he's conveying is don't allow your marriage to be something that becomes an excuse for spiritual laziness. That's the concept Paul's conveying here. Not that we should neglect our spouses. That is wrong and hyper-spiritual. God wants us to take care of our spouses. He's saying, don't use the fact that you're married as an excuse for not seeking the Lord because time is short. So from now on, don't let your marriage be your justification for why you're not really serving Jesus because that's the other side that can happen. Sometimes people can tend to make the error of kind of letting their marriage be their excuse for why they don't answer a calling from the Lord or why they don't walk with the Lord or why they don't serve the Lord the way they should be serving the Lord. Look, sometimes we wrongly justify our spiritual condition being because we're married. Oh, well, I got to keep my wife happy or I got to keep my husband happy. And we almost give this idea that the excuse is our spouse holds us back from serving Jesus. And, and look, God's word is saying, look, that's not true. And we shouldn't let that happen in our lives. There's balance in all those things, but the bottom line is there are lots of married people as well as married couples who are faithfully serving the Lord and serving the Lord together. So please, God's saying, don't use your marriage as a justification for why you can't walk with the Lord or why you can't do ministry or serve the Lord. We never, ever want to use that as a trade-off where we're kind of idolizing our marriage over honoring the Lord and doing his true calling upon our life. And then he shows some other examples to exhort to not be distracted here in these verses. He mentions in our verses here, many different types of things that can preoccupy us to keep us kind of distracted and kind of sidetrack us where he says there at the end of verse 31, remember the form of this world, and that's the general concept, the catch-all of these different examples, the form of this world, the different experiences of it, he says, these things are all passing away. In other words, they're all temporary. So we don't want to become overly preoccupied with the patterns, the affairs, the experiences of this world in a way whereby we're not remaining focused on serving the Lord, where we become so earthly-minded that we become no heavenly good anymore, the idea is. I love the way some of the modern translations render these two verses. Let me just read them to you. One translation renders it this way. Those who mourn should be as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Another translation renders it this way. Those who weep or who rejoice or buy things should not be absorbed by weeping their joy or their possessions. And those who use things of the world should not become attached to them because this world will soon pass away. You see the idea there, the caution is really upon becoming overly engrossed in or overly attached to things that are part of this present world experience here. This is the idea 
cautioning us that we don't overly start to occupy ourselves with or kind of almost idolize to a wrong degree things that are part of this present life experience. And two things he really zeroes in on here. The first thing is our personal feelings. And we not think anything of that, but he notice he mentions here the idea of the experience of grief and weeping as well as the experience of joy and happiness. And look, our personal feelings can become something that distract us spiritually, that preoccupy us and get us off track spiritually. For example, are we going to grieve and weep at times? Absolutely. That's a natural part of hardships and loss and sad things that happen. So he says, look, it's okay to grieve and weep at times, but what God is saying is beware of letting your grief begin to consume you so much mentally that you find yourself stuck in the doldrums of depression and constant grief and sadness. And that is what really begins to just preoccupy your whole life. And so you become paralyzed by grief. And that can actually happen. Someone be in grief or sad or disappointment or something that's happened and their grief or sadness or letdown or sorrow, whatever they're processing, can actually begin to kind of just consume their life in an idolatrous way whereby it preoccupies them so much it just paralyzes them spiritually now on the other side of that he mentions being joyful or the idea is being happy those who are rejoicing he says those who are joyful as if they weren't the idea there again is it wrong to experience happy or happiness or pleasure of course not Nothing wrong with enjoying life, but beware of letting that be what drives you in your lifestyle and your pursuits, where you begin in an unhealthy way to neglect what's spiritually right or important because you're always putting your personal happiness, being joyful and happy before the Lord. And he says, be careful of these things. Any emotion, whether it's seeking to be happy, don't let that be your top priority. Time is short. Don't make being happy your first priority. Make serving Jesus be your first priority. And he's saying, don't let grief and depression and despair be what paralyzes you when you should be focusing on serving the Lord. The other thing he says, don't become preoccupied with your emotions, but he also says, don't become preoccupied with your earthly possessions. Because you see what he says as well in verse 30? Those who buy as though they didn't possess. Those who use this world is not misusing it. So are we gonna buy things in the world? Yes. Are we going to possess things and are we going to use things in the world? Yes. But he's saying, look, don't become overly preoccupied with material earthly possessions because in any culture, especially in a fluent culture, materialism and possessions can begin to hinder our spiritual lives. And it's probably a bigger challenge to us, certainly living in an affluent American culture. Some Christians become preoccupied with a lifestyle of acquiring stuff, nice stuff. And it begins to drive their lifestyle or indulging entertainment or maintaining a certain lifestyle status. And sadly, it becomes to the neglect of serving the Lord and it subtly sidetracks them as a Christian. And they don't even realize that what's beginning to happen as an American Christian sometimes, is they become more devoted to their lifestyle than they are devoted to living for the Lord. And we got to kind of guard that. And I think in our culture, we have to guard that even more. Jesus warned of being aware of the deceitfulness of riches choking out our spiritual lives. Again, we read those verses, being overly engrossed 
overly attached, the idea is, to present physical possessions or pursuits or hobbies or just enjoying life. Again, nothing wrong in balance, but be careful you don't let your lifestyle, folks, dictate your decisions about what degree of dedication you use to serve the Lord. Beware of that, that you don't let your lifestyle be what drives how you live for the Lord. Instead, let me encourage you, live fully for the Lord and adjust your lifestyle to serving the Lord. Make that be the priority. You adjust your lifestyle to what it takes to serve the Lord first and foremost as an individual or as a family. That's why he says, look, time is short. This world's going to pass away soon so that from now on, he's saying, let's not get preoccupied. Let's not get distracted, Paul says, that it's going to hold us back in our spiritual lives. He says, verse 32, going on, I want you to be without care. The idea is Paul saying, I want you to be freed up from the concerns of this life, that the cares of this life wouldn't stifle your spiritual life. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to start to now uphold the benefits of singleness in light of that in one analogy, that singleness is not something to be viewed as a miserable thing But the Bible proves it can actually be a valuable thing to benefit a person spiritually if they see it correctly. He says, verse 32, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference, distinction, the idea between a wife and a virgin, a single unmarried person. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So Paul's pointing out here the challenges, again, that marriage do require of those who are in a marriage relationship, managing more responsibilities that naturally cause, listen, divided interests, right? That's part of the complication that comes with entering into marriage is you now have to balance divided interests. You now, as a Christian, have to continue to seek to please the Lord, yet you also have a spouse who's your life partner, who everything influences that you share a life together with, who you also have to be sensitive to pleasing and blessing as well. Whereas the Christian who's a single doesn't have that struggle of dual devotion, right? They're free from that. Now, uh, let's consider just two main things that Paul's kind of trying to say in these verses here which are the important crux of what he's saying in these verses. First being is that the married person does have a double or a dual responsibility to both please the Lord and also to please our spouse at the exact same time. The very essence that he mentions that here, that it's stated, is not indicating it's something wrong. What he's stating is, look, it's simply a fact. It's just a fact of reality. The reality is that a married man, a married woman must now focus on pleasing their spouse. That's a natural part of the cares of this world and a marriage relationship. It's that dual responsibility. So it is proper if you're married to seek to serve and care for and please your spouse. You should live in that way. Don't try and misinterpret what he's saying here as he's trying to help singles understand something. It is totally appropriate as well as loving and kind to do what pleases my wife. We're supposed to do that. A husband should seek to please his wife. A wife should seek to please her husband. And we have to learn how to navigate that new challenge in the balance to serve the Lord and do what pleases him, 
But at the same time, I got to balance that with also as I'm trying to serve the Lord and please him, I'm not neglecting to please and to serve and to care for my spouse. And so that's the balance that the Christian married person has to learn how to do, which makes it a little bit more complicated. Yet part of pleasing the Lord is also pleasing and loving and serving and caring for your spouse. Now, on the other side of that, Paul's saying, look, the advantage then to the single person spiritually is they have greater freedom. That's what he's trying to say there. That's why in verse 32, he says, I want you to be without care. He who's unmarried cares, he says, for the things of the Lord, how he can please the Lord in contrast to the married person who's having to think about pleasing their spouse. What he's trying to say to the single person is, look, you don't have to consider about verifying things with your spouse before you do anything, right? The single person doesn't have that challenge. They have the freedom that whatever they want to do, pretty much as long as they're okay with it and God's okay with it, go for it, right? You don't have to verify, is this going to make my wife happy? Is that going to upset my husband? Am I taking consideration their needs or what we got? You're, you have a tremendous amount of liberty when you're single. So even in regards to the spiritual life, you want to go on a missions trip. You don't have to say, honey, I'm praying about going on this missions trip. Can we afford it? Are you okay with that? Is it okay if I'm gone for 10 days and you know, some you know, location on the other side of the world? You don't have to do that. You're single. If it's what pleases the Lord, you're free, right? You can just go. You can just serve the Lord. You don't have to say, can I be out to Bible study seven nights a week? I want to. You're single. You can go to Bible study seven nights a week. You can go to prayer meetings seven days a week. You have this tremendous liberty to just, in a sense, do as you please, because all you need to focus on is pleasing the Lord. So from God's viewpoint, it's an advantage to actually be in a single status spiritually, God says. It gives you more freedom. That's why he says in verse 34, he says, the unmarried woman can simply care about the things of the Lord, how she may please the Lord. So again, if you are single currently, hear me, don't misinterpret this season of singleness in your life. Don't misinterpret it. Take full advantage of it and invest in the opportunity. God says it's actually a blessing in your life right now spiritually. Don't misinterpret it. See it from God's perspective. And if you're trying to decide about getting married, also understand this dynamic that if you're single and you have that freedom spiritually, in your life and you're thinking about getting married, God says, keep your eyes wide open because now you're going to enter into giving up some of that freedom and you're going to have to manage the dual responsibility of pleasing the Lord and pleasing a spouse simultaneously. And that should be understood. Paul, having lived this out quite well, therefore says in verse 35, his purpose for this, he says, look, I'm trying to say this for your own profit, not to put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Paul says, that, that's the point I'm trying to make here. How blessed is it to be able to serve the Lord without distractions? Because we always struggle with distractions. And he's saying, look, I'm trying to give you the opportunity to capitalize on this advantage of serving the Lord without any distractions in your life. That's what we all should seek to do. Serve Jesus to the best of our ability without distractions. He then says, verse 36, but if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she's past the flower of her youth, and I'm not going to touch that, and thus it may be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let him marry. Nevertheless, you stand steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but as power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. 
So he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Now, let me just say, this is one of those New Testament passages where translators and commentators kind of hold a little bit of different views on. Now, let me just say to simplify the matter, it's not on the subject or the truth that's being taught that there are differences of opinion. That's not the difference of opinion. It's on who the verses are actually addressing specifically. That's where some of the difference is held. Yet despite who it's intended for, the same truth that's taught applies to both parties. So it really doesn't matter, therefore, because the same counsel is important for both parties. Some think this is referring to the single Christian who's in a healthy relationship or who's already engaged and is contemplating whether or not they should take it to the next step to marriage. Some think it's addressing the father who has a daughter who's still a virgin and unmarried, and she's in a relationship or engaged, and he's trying to determine if it's okay to give her in marriage or to wait and not give her in marriage yet. In either situation, the same concept applies spiritually, and the concept is simply this, that if it's a healthy relationship between two Christians who seem to be compatible, God is saying beware of overly prolonging entering into the marriage relationship because that may not be in the best interest of the couple. You understand me on that? If you're already in a relationship or two people are already in a relationship, they both are Christians, they seem compatible, the, the, the counsel here is beware of overly prolonging the delay of entering into marriage because that may not actually be what's best for those individuals. That's why he says here, let them do as they wish, let them marry. You see what's what he said? Let them do what they wish. They desire to be married, let them marry. Let them enter into marriage. Again, allow it to progress if that's what they desire. He says, especially if they're struggling in the way they're behaving towards one another. In other words, if it's starting to become a challenge in the proper kind of you know, behavior of one another in the relationship because they're waiting and prolonging, saying, look, remember, marriage is of the Lord. It's God's design. So let it happen. Let it progress, he's saying. So again, if you're in a healthy romantic relationship with a fellow believer this morning, he says, verse 36, if that's the case, if you think you're behaving improperly toward your virgin, if she's past the flower of her youth, he says, then he says, let it be, do as you wish. You're not sinning. Let them marry. So this morning, if you're in a relationship with a Christian, it's healthy, you seem compatible. He, God's saying it might be best to stop trying to prolong the process. It might be best to let it progress to marriage. That may be what's in the best interest of the relationship. Now, on the other side of that, in balance, in verse 37, he says, however, if you can remain content and you can control and have power over your own will and you don't need to marry, then he says, that's fine too. You should follow God's timetable. That's the important thing at the end, that you're following God's timetable and not over-spiritualizing getting married too quick or you're not over-spiritualizing, trying to prolong because you've been praying for 17 years and she's past the flower of her youth and you end up burying her before you marry her. You understand the idea? So he's saying, look, let it progress. Marriage is God's plan. Now, on the other side of that, if it's addressing, as I said, not the single couple in a relationship, it also seems this could be an instruction to the father struggling with giving away his daughter. Because you notice in verse 38, the language 
He who gives her in marriage does well. He who does not give her. So this could be the father wanting to protect his daughter, trying to make sure it's the right guy. And the implication being, which I believe personally is the biblical pattern, as well as was the cultural norm in that day, that it was the right and responsibility of the father to be strongly involved to a great degree in permitting who married his daughter ultimately to help her select the right individual in such a life-changing major decision. Again, there was a proving and an approval process that a young man endured for a season to properly demonstrate his character until the father felt confident enough that he had the permission of the father to take over control and take over the father's role in her life to replace the father by becoming her husband. And so you can understand with any father in a protective way, that stewardship of trying to determine that, how that can be a challenge. And it seems the caution here is the father letting that become out of balance. And you see how that could happen? Where a father trying to be so protective of his daughter, so in a sense cautious that he actually may become too strict in his control of the whole thing. And he could start to stifle and hold back what God is doing. And he's saying, let him marry. What are you doing? You've scrutinized. You, you, you've been you know, a good steward, but at a certain point, don't keep holding them back. If it's of the Lord, let him marry. Now, let me say in light of that, two things by way of application. I want to encourage you fathers, if you have daughters, to stay engaged in the process when your daughters come to this stage and season of life, of dating and marriage. It is your role, bro. And I mean that, seriously, it is your duty. Don't let some guy come marching into your life and begin to start hijacking and pushing you out of the way and taking over control of your daughter. You stay engaged and let him know, look, she doesn't belong to you. She belongs to me. And to the day we stand at the altar and I say, her mother and I, when they say, who gives her? The idea is you ain't getting her till I give her. And don't behave like that. Stay engaged. Your daughter needs your help. You don't invest decades into your daughter's life to just let any guy who wants to date her more than that marry her just come in and push you out and keep you uninvolved. Stay involved. Stay in a healthy way involved. Help her progress through that process. And let me say for those of you who are young ladies who aren't married, you could do no better thing than take advantage of the wisdom and the love and the care of your father to assist you in that process. Do you really think your dad's going to help you pick out a moron? Really? I mean, don't you think after all those years, he really has your best interest in mind? Trust him. Let him be involved, particularly you two. You got me there? No, I'm just kidding. Let him be involved. Your dad paid me good money to say that. Look at the last two verses. Paul concludes. He says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And Paul says, but she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the spirit of God. So Paul gives a final instruction here regarding remarriage, particularly for those who are widows or widowed. And notice the marriage bond exists for life. But he says, if God has allowed death to come to your spouse, You've been released from that marriage. And he says, you now have liberty if you want to as a widow or widower to remarry. What's the only criteria for remarriage? Verse there, verse 39, 
only in the Lord. That is, you just make sure they're a believer, a sincere Christian. And let me conclude with leaving you with this concept. Notice the general concept given from the Holy Spirit regarding marriage, you might say, for the Christian biblically. That there's one criteria for Christian marriage. You marry someone else who's in the Lord. Everything else is flexible. If you like bronze, you like brunettes, you like blue eyes, brown eyes. Again, personality, you can choose whatever you want. But they got to be a Christian. They got to be a Christian. Don't subvert one over the other. The first thing is, are they in the Lord? After they're in the Lord, the rest is just variety. You can pick and choose from there. But make sure they're in the Lord. Hey, let's stand together.